The reading today is Romans 3, 21 to 31. Now hear the word of the Lord. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrament of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where, then, is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? He is not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by his faith, by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is the word of God. Just received a prayer request during the song before the scripture reading. Um, many of you know Johanna, Lucia Galpin's sister. Actually, I'm looking back at Rick. I think Johanna was one of the first people that we knew connected to Sutherland Church before we knew this was even here. Um, and Johanna moved away a number of years ago, but I just received word that she had a stroke recently. And so uh, we're going to just pray for Joanna at this time before we dive into the sermon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for those that you um, call before us. And Johanna has been uh, such a good and positive influence in many lives. Many people here would know her. And even those who don't would know what it means to pray for someone like this. We pray for recovery from this stroke. I don't know all the details, Lord. But we pray that she would be brought back to health and strength. And we pray that at this time particularly, she would know... Uh, the value, the gift of faith in you. So bless her, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our topic of consideration this morning and for many weeks uh, in our series leading up to Easter is the Christian gospel. The gospel is what the book of Romans is about, and we've been studying the book of Romans. We've only gotten as far as chapter 3. And uh, we're only going to get as far as, I think, chapter 6 or 7 before Easter, and then we'll have to pick the series up again at another time. The gospel, as we say, is what the book of Romans is about. 
or to read one of my favorite quotes. The goal of human life is not death, but resurrection. And Romans will tell us about that, reminding us that death is not the last thing. Many of you here think that death is the last thing. We have some vague notion of life after death, maybe. Or, but the world operates often as if death is the last thing. The Christian gospel will counter this. Actually, more than counter it, because the gospel is higher than the highest truth. It's not a conviction to be argued, as if it were a political philosophy or a worldview. Now, I think I'm going to believe this and put a little bit of this in there. The gospel is, thanks be to God, you should be very grateful for this. Most advertisers and marketers, and I'm going to add, most churches tell you that it's mostly about you. We've got all the programs you could ever want. You got a six-year-old kid? Oh, we've got the best program for six-year-old kids. You got the, we got that too. You like music? and a, We're going to do music just like you like. Most things now, even church, are marketed to you, sold to you. You're the center. Let me say this to you as a gift. The gospel is not first about you. It exists beyond you and apart from you. Is it for you? Sure. But it's not first about you. The gospel is not first about now. It isn't seeking to be culturally relevant. It's higher than that. It is, we're told in Romans 1, promised beforehand back to the ancient days, the prophets, the law. It goes back to the ancient days, but it goes ahead to the whole of time. In other words, you will live, you will die. The gospel will remain. The gospel is good news. A message of life, not death, in a, in a world that despite the evidence, despite the, the uh, glitzy enthusiasm and the way that leisure is presented to us or entertainment. The gospel is a message of life, not death, in a world that is saturated by the fear of death. And our posture in relationship to the gospel is ever and always only one posture when the gospel is properly understood. Our posture and relationship to the gospel is simply to receive. You can't earn, you can't make, you can't make it better, you can't add to it. It is simply to receive. And if you want to know what the Christian spiritual life is, it is receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ on an ongoing basis. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about because as soon as I say it, I can see it in your faces, I can see it in your eyes, that when you receive the gospel, you may have been a Christian for many, many years, but when you receive the gospel on a daily basis, you know what it means to be alive. Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome. He says that he's commissioned by God, by the Holy Spirit, to hand over this gospel, this good news, which is always new, this isn't scripture, this is a commentator, but I love this, these words. I've told them to you a number of weeks ago. To hand over this gospel, which is always new. Write this down if you're writing things down, please. It's always new, unprecedented, joyful, and good. The gospel is always new, always without precedent. Nothing comes before it. It's without precedent, and it's joyful, and it's good. Always. And so we say, Amen. Hallelujah. I'm glad to be in church. Let's sing a, a, an upbeat song. 
It's sunny outside, thanks be to God. We celebrate. The trouble is, after the introduction of the book of Romans, most of chapter 1, or at least half of chapter 1, and all of chapter 2, and in well into chapter 3. We started reading at verse 21 this morning of chapter 3. But before that, most of the content of 1, 2, and 3 are describing what's called the wrath of God. And now you have, well, that's why I don't go to church, because it's all, you know, judgment. If it's all judgment, then we've got it wrong. But this is talking about the wrath of God. The wrath of God, remember, is not the topic of the book of Romans and should not be the topic of any given church. And if that's the tone of the church, then, I mean, I I suppose some some churches have a particular uh, mission. But uh, the wrath of God is not the topic of Romans. The topic of Romans is the gospel. But a picture is drawn in these first three chapters that says, here is life apart from God. It is a very contemporary picture. Many things in Scripture, I mean, we're reading circumcised, uncircumcised, apart from the law. Apart, and if you're not a student of Scripture, which you should be, and all the tools are there, if you want to find out what that all means in about three minutes, you can find it out. And you should be a student of Scripture, and you should know some of these things, and we occasionally will teach some of them. But the sermon isn't the primary place for teaching the meaning of these things. It is the place for us to outline the gospel of Jesus Christ. A picture is drawn, a very contemporary picture of life apart from God, which basically says this. If you turn away from glorifying God, and you begin to glorify self or things then eventually, this is the progression of the wrath of God, then eventually those things will swallow you up. They'll take your life over. Romans talks about it as God handing them over to their, to their lusts, to self-worship, right? And I, I can draw that out. I mean, I shouldn't have to convince you of this. There's not one person here I should have to convince that, of this truth, that when you turn from worshiping God and you begin to worship things or comfort or leisure, right, those things eventually swallow you up and take everything over Just think of Jesus saying, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon, or God and wealth, money. I mean, I think there are still, and I don't need to give my opinion of who these people are. It's just a number in a church this size. There are a number of people who struggle with this truth. You can't serve God and money. In a world where we're told, you better darn well save money or else you might not have the lifestyle you like. What? Many people, in a a place like this, many people would think that if you're not doing properly all the money things, something's wrong with you. You can't serve God in money. Eventually, what will happen? It'll just swallow you up. I don't have to convince you, but I'm trying to. You'll be taken over by them, handed over to them. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, even if you turn to religion, which is please hear this, another human creation, right? Just like currency and whatever else. Religion's a human creation. God is not Anglican and God is not Brethren and God is not Baptist and God is not Presbyterian and thanks be to God. Even if you turn to religion, all of chapter 2, another human creation, acting as if you know God because you are religious and other people are not religious, 
Well, Romans is clear on this. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness, which includes thinking that religion brings you a special standing. Something that you earn, something that works your way towards God. The wrath of God is revealed against non-religion and religion alike. The teaching reaches its peak in the first half of chapter 3, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago where we're reminded no one seeks God, not one. Here the idea of human distinction is fallacy. Our world runs on the distinctions, right? Someone has more money than others. Somebody has more talent than others. Somebody's just made it better than others. We congratulate people like this. I'm not saying that achievement doesn't mean something. I mean, I marvel at some athletic achievement or some intellectual achievement or scientific achievement, whatever it might be. But in terms of the gospel, there is no distinction in humanity. One is never better than the other. No one is better than any one other in standing before God. That's what it means when it says no one seeks after God. They all practice deceit. They are quick to hurt one another. This is a description of of human history that people literally are willing to hurt one another for personal gain. It's just fear and hatred and blindness. We are all, and I drew this out a couple of weeks ago, we are all on a single step, all of humanity. We're all on a single step. There's not another step higher. We are on one single step. All of history. All humanity gathered on this step. This is where Romans 3 brings us. Waiting for the completion of history. As if we're all standing on that level ground. And just wondering what's next. Hoping that there's something transcendent. That will tell us about meaning. Or purpose. Or history. That this all had any meaning at all. Last week, Grady Bueller did a a wonderful job of outlining the distinctions in the text, and I'm thankful for that. The groups to whom Paul is writing, explaining Jews and Gentiles, explaining the right relationship to the law, explaining distinctions of the law, moral law, civil law, ceremonial law. All of this to get ready for this most important turn today in verse 21. He actually went to verses 26 and 27 and others to describe it. And we go back to verse 21 for this most important turn. Uh, Some commentators, I I read one particular, I read about four or five this week, but one uh, little excerpt that I read said, this is arguably the most important paragraph of ever written. Romans 3, 21 to 26. No more important paragraph in all of human history from the standpoint of Christian belief and understanding. I've called it the best news of all time, the title for the sermon today. And when I say the best news of all time, I don't just mean one time so-and-so, you know, such-and-such a team won the Stanley Cup. It wasn't that great. I mean the best news, it's the best news of all time, but it's over all time and it's for all time. It's not just a one kind of thing that happened in the past. (coughs) It's living. We are about to hear the gospel God's declaration, God's initiative. Or back to that standing on the single plane being gathered. God can only be known when men of all ranks are grouped together upon a single step. (coughs) Excuse me, James, can you grab me my water there? I was going to run down, but... I want to draw this out for you.
I'm almost better. Honestly, I am. <coughs> Excuse me. What a time for that. I want to draw this out for you. That the assessment of life and meaning from the human perspective contrasted with the assessment of life and meaning from the divine perspective, the Christian understanding. From the human perspective, we are told, you've been told this, and I know you've told people this, and same for me. Get the most out of life. You know, grab, the, grab what you can today. All you have is today. Seize the day, carpe diem. Now, I'm not totally opposed to that, just partially. You know why? Because I know people who are sick. I know people who that seize the day line is a terribly threatening line because they're aware of loss in their life or days that they can never get back. Thank you. But that's the general prescription of life apart from God. Take what you can. Just, uh, I don't want to get political here, but there was a decision this week in Canada, a unanimous decision by our Supreme Court uh, in terms of the right to die, physician-assisted suicide. Okay, I'll tell you what I think about it, the decision. It made me really, really sad. I, I understand, and someone who faces suffering, I don't mean to say that I know and they don't. I, I wouldn't ever want to put myself in that place. So I'm sympathetic. My sorrow comes on this, that it is only without a sense of the transcendent that suffering loses all meaning. So that suffering is to be avoided at all costs because, well, I'm suffering. Got to end that. In fact, one of the greatest gifts, I think, of Pope John Paul before Benedict and before current Pope was that he allowed the world to see him dying. Trusting in God. Or the word dignity you hear. Now I'm going to tell you what makes me angry on this. When people say, well, I deserve death with dignity, do you mean that not being able to control your bowel movements or having to have somebody else wipe you and care for you is undignified? Are you kidding me? Dignity is not something that you earn or something that you display because you have certain abilities. Dignity in Christian understanding is something that God has blessed every human with. It's recognized. I recognize the dignity in you, no matter what your ability or disability is. So I'm sad. But I understand. The sermon's not about that. What do you say to somebody who get the most out of life and they're facing a long-term chronic or terminal illness? Human history is gathered on one single step. And what happens if on that step, and I know it's kind of a sci-fi picture. I'm not a sci-fi guy, really. But on that single step, all of human history gathered, we're waiting for some kind of declaration, for something transcendent, let's say God. And we hear, this is what much of the world will say to us, and we hear nothing. What do you do then? You go back to your life. compelled by the fact that you better get as much as you can, even if it means that that other guy's going to get less. Grab and go. Go, go. And then this. Each loss becomes devastating, potentially. 
You didn't get the job you wanted. The relationship didn't work out like you wanted. It failed. You face the death of a loved one. Each loss becomes potentially devastating and almost unbearable because there's nothing transcendent. Each failure threatens to swallow us up. And just as importantly, each success or victory dangerously implies that we are better than someone else. So we think as we scramble back to our lives, this thing went really well for me today. Now I've got this position or this occupation. Well, I guess I'm doing pretty good then. All I can hope for after that is to, because I know death is coming, all I can hope for is to leave something behind. Money or influence or good memories. Maybe when I'm gone, somebody will say, remember that time Todd did so-and-so? Wasn't that great? Maybe, maybe. In this life without God, every greeting becomes a potential dagger. Let me show you what I mean. You ready? You have to think of this as if I'm asking just you. How are you doing? How are you doing? How are things going for you? How are your children? I mean, maybe you're celebrating, but you get what I mean. All of this is tenuous and tragic. It's not God eager to punish. It's God allowing people to turn away from the life that he offers to seek and act as if they can find life in human things. So we went from that celebration to this. But thanks be to God we don't stop there. Romans 3.21 and following. Here's the truth. Romans 3.21 particularly, I believe has to be felt as much as it's heard. Now, as I say that, I'm aware in a church like this, there are people who have trouble feeling things emotionally and spiritually. I don't mean to belittle any of that, but I will still say, I I understand Romans 3.21 intellectually to some degree, but what it means to me is something that I feel. And so I, I pray for you if that's a struggle for you. Because it doesn't end with the tragic, tenuous human circumstance. Rather, we hear this, and these are the, I mean, how spiritual are these words? But they're like we could, that should be the vision statement on the walls of churches. Only two words, but now. Because against this world of death and loss and and ultimately nothing, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness, but now. And you, you won't believe, I hope you do believe, but you won't believe the picture that's coming. But now a righteousness from God has been revealed or made manifest. All of our language is going to be inadequate to express it. A righteousness from God has been made known and made real. So that you don't have to live in this. The now is, is a very important word here. You go every word in the text. We're going to be here for a long, long time. But now, because now means at least three things. It means a sequence in the argument. So Paul says, I've, I've told you how the wrath of God works. And step one, two, three, how this is going on. 
Uh, but now, the next point of my argument is a righteousness from God has been revealed. That's okay to understand now that way. Or now as in time. It used to be like this. This was happening. This was happening. This was happening. But now, so it's the next thing. Those two meanings are important and they exist in the text. But the most important meaning is to say there was this time. There was this era. There was this understanding of human history that, what, that existed in this way. But now we live in another time with another reality over the whole of history. But now a righteousness from God has been revealed against the darkness of human ambition, against the terror of loss and death, against the swallowing up by the things of our own making. Like a clarion call, God is going to speak. We will not be left with silence on that plane. God is going to declare. And what will he declare? This is what many people think about religion and church, that God will declare this. You terrible, terrible people. I mean, one of the worst, one of the most difficult things you can say to someone is that you're disappointed in them. What if God said, I'm disappointed in you? Or it's over, you failed. I'm done. And God turns his back and walks away. And it would effectively be the same thing as if God had said nothing. Maybe worse, maybe there's some kind of punishment. Religion loves to talk about the nature of what that might be. God is going to speak and write at this moment what could have been said, what perhaps should have been said in a logical progression is now I'm going to punish you. Now you're done. You turned away from me. But God did not make it his glory. This is another thing to write down. And maybe it's in there already. God did not make it his glory to punish God made it his glory to redeem. You hear that? Amen. God is going to declare gospel and redemption. God is going to declare, to put it very succinctly, God is going to declare Jesus Christ over all history, the best news of all time. So what is left for you, whether you come here every week and, you, and, you, and you've accepted Jesus Christ or you have a relationship with people in this church and maybe this church, but you haven't come to Christian faith. What is left for you, for me, for all of us is simply to receive that which God has declared. And I have a word for this. It's not just my word. It's a word through Christian history. The word for this, are you ready? It's conversion. That I live my life, my mind, everything in this realm. Maybe even was religious. Maybe even went to church. But I didn't trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the declaration over all history. But I have converted to that. And for those who maybe have, have a hard time saying that even in Christian faith, it is, this is what Christian faith means. And it is, and I don't mean to like, we're not switching baiting here. If you come to this church and you have not gone through that process or uh, that awakening, I would say, or whatever, then we don't think anything different of you, anything less of you. You are, uh, you know, we're no better. Nobody is. But this is what we want for you. I wonder why these people like me going here. Well, we like you. That's one thing. Second thing, we long for this. So a few, couple sermon points. 
in the text. Firstly, we have God's verdict, like a thumbs, some, thumbs up or thumbs down at some, you know, coliseum. God's going to give his verdict. Verse 21, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed. This is the time of verdict, apart from the law, attested to in the law and the prophets. This is righteousness through Jesus Christ. And we can know this righteousness by faith. It comes to all who work, you know, are religious. No, it comes to all who believe. What God has done for me, I carry this thought when I'm in coffee shops on Lonsdale, when I'm with very good non-Christian friends, whatever, because I really struggle with the distinction of who's in, who's out. Many of you who know me would know that. And one of the helpful things that I carry in my mind is what God has done for me, he has done for everyone. To think otherwise is to think in a non-Christian manner. The sacrifice that God has made for me, he has made for every single person. There's no distinction. So what's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Well, there's conversion. But a Christian simply, simply seeks to see what God has done for them and live in the light of this knowledge. Uh, the language that I love for this, and as we would long to see more and more people come to know Christ, these are, this is the term that I would use, that we have been awakened to conversion. Because that, that reminds us that it's not our work, that it's God's work. But God's verdict, and this is an important word, is creative. I don't simply mean that like a nice Sunday school project or a beautiful work of art that you would see in a museum. New York Times has an article this morning on uh, they're banning selfie sticks at museums now. You know what a selfie stick is? It's just wonderful that we're inventing more ways to look at ourselves. It means you go to a museum and the painting's back there. And you hold the stick out with your, your phone on the end and you can Bluetooth take a picture of yourself or yourself with your Valentine with a picture phone. Guess what you're doing as you're taking that picture? You're getting your back to the picture, to the art. Anyway, you can be there and actually experience it, or you can be there with the idea of showing people that you were there. They're different things. Why did I say that? Only for this. Even the most beautiful painting that you turn your back on in a museum, that it's creative, that you see a creativity in it. When we use the word creative for God, we mean something even more than that. We mean that God, and I guess painters do this too, and artists. We mean that God takes nothing and makes something. He creates out of nothing. So this is the scriptural language that says, God takes sinful people who have all turned their back on him, even the religious ones, every one of us. God takes sinful people and he creates, he makes. What are the words? Those of you who have been in church for many years. A new creation. God's verdict. That's God's verdict. It's creative in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's doing, not ours, nothing of ours. The text is clear. As John Stott says, fundamental to the gospel of salvation is that the saving initiative from beginning to end belongs to God. What does verse 21 mean? Verse 21 means an excuse. I'm using all male pronouns in many of these quotes. Uh, they're old quotes, and I'm just not changing them. I'm using all masculine pronouns because that's what's there, and it sounds clunky if I change it or explain it. But anyway, 
What does verse 21 mean? But now a righteousness from God has been revealed. It means this. The wrong of man cannot stand against the right of God. This gospel is good news. The wrong of man cannot stand against the right of God. And if you have carried a religious sensibility with you for years and years that makes you shake your head at the world because some generation before you did or whatever, like, oh, things are so terrible. This is the gospel. The wrong of humanity cannot stand against the right of God. It is a gospel of hope and life. God declares Jesus. And in Jesus, we see God's character and God's salvation And this important truth in Jesus, we see God's will not to be without humanity. God's relationship to humanity is not first about sin, not first about religion or law. God's relationship to humanity is first about Jesus. And in Jesus Christ, the law is fulfilled. But God's relationship is first about Jesus. Sin is never the first word, and sin will never have the final word. Amen. The gospel is God's declaration of life in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God turns to humanity. And in Jesus, humanity can turn to God. That's why we worship Jesus Christ. That's why we say that he became obedient to death, even on a cross. And in him, we can have full and abundant life. Sin is humanity's denial of... Or I'll go masculine again. Sin is man's denial of himself. Sin is your denial of yourself. So God has for you to live in this realm of light and life and hope. But you turn your back on God and go back to this other thing that we talked about before. And as my, my hero theologian Karl Barth says, I love the image, I've used it before here. We turn our backs on God. We roll ourselves into a, like, like a hedgehog with prickly spikes. Bart will say that, that the prime way to understand sin is not pride, which, which historically in Christian faith, we talk about pride being kind of the genesis of many other sins. Bart's going to say, no, it's sloth. Because sloth is that sense of saying, well, I guess this is all there is. You, you deny who you are in God. God's verdict, to contrast, is creative God's verdict in Jesus Christ is good. It's life. Creativity, not just to say, oh, that's a beautiful drawing. Let's take a picture and show people that we were here. But creativity as an awe at life where there was no life. And when you know creativity like this, you don't seek to consume it. You seek to be consumed by it and in it. Creativity is found most acutely in what's called in this text, the atonement. The other word that you might have in your translation is propitiation. It means the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And what happens is this, the text outlines it. That plane of all humanity that's gathered, Scripture says that Jesus Christ enters into life on that plane of humanity. Or to quote, the Son of God exists with man and as man in the fallen and perishing state. Jesus Christ joins us on that one single step. And that's why we have our memory verse for today would be this. So write down. I need to remember 2 Corinthians 5.21. Scripture says, He who knew no sin became sin. Joined us on that one step. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. 
Jesus was not finally defeated by sin and death. He defeated all darkness by giving himself so that we might know full and abundant life as God has intended. What's pleasing to God comes into being when all human righteousness is irretrievably gone. But that's not a message of despair. It's a message of hope. My favorite words in the sermon are coming now. And they are in reference to the atonement. Again, a commentator that I was reading this week called the atonement, and here's my favorite words. Quote, the most actual thing. I love that. That's all I need for the sermon today for my own spiritual walk. The atonement, Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the behalf, on my behalf and yours, is the most actual thing in all of human history. Not self-interest, not appetite, not the best vacation ever, not success or failure, not the fact that you look at people in this room as better than you or worse than you, not your greatest achievement or your most that which troubles you the most in your history. Those are not the most actual things. The most actual thing is not religious devotion, not adherence to some code, The atonement is the most actual thing. But now. I mean, you need to carry this in your mind as you walk through your day. But now a righteousness from God has been revealed. When I hear, think, speak, read these words, often in my mind comes Handel's Messiah, that that piece in Handel's Messiah that says, and the glory, the glory, the glory of the Lord. And it's so high-pitched that you think you're going to explode just in listening to it. It's hard to listen to. And the glory, the glory, it just goes like this. And if I wasn't sick, I could sing it. But anyway, it goes so high. And the glory, the glory, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. It's not God's majesty. It's not God's strength. It's not God's perfection. It's not God's holiness. In in a sense, it's all of these things. The glory of the Lord is the atonement in Jesus Christ our Lord. And all flesh shall see it together. This is what God will speak as his verdict. As the most actual thing, it means that all looking back and all looking forward can become defined by the atonement. So for me, how would I explain this? Well, I can remember laying in a little thing that I made as a fort at 807 Westview Crescent, where we used to live with my mom. Single mom back in the 70s. And it was like a storage closet thing, but I put a piece of carpet down, and I guess we didn't have much to store. And I brought a little radio, and I would lay there for a couple hours. There's a hole I could see out to the street. I'm the same guy. Even I have trouble thinking I'm the same guy as then. But here's what it means that the atonement covers all looking back. It means that when I was laying there listening to that music, you know, like Paul McCartney, The Things You Do for Love or something, the most actual thing was the atonement in Jesus Christ. Even though I didn't know it then. But I would, and I will. And looking forward. Sometimes I you think it's morbid. It's not morbid. Maybe you don't. I walk by the hospice here in North Vancouver, and I think... Maybe that's where I'm going to die. You might do similar. I don't know the future. 
But I know whatever it is that I face, the most actual thing will not be what I face. It will be the atonement of Jesus Christ over the whole world and my life. That's why I don't have to avoid all suffering. Precisely when we recognize that we are sinners do we perceive that we are brothers. Now a righteousness from God has been revealed. The possibility of life from an inexhaustible source. Eternal life. Abundant life. Life to the full. And so every example that I give will sound small. Every picture that I try to draw will barely point to it and almost diminish it. This is like first fruits. The flowers that you see if you go outside now to remind you, the reminding you that spring is coming and this landscape will soon burst forth with life like a future where you thought there was no future. This week you may have heard the story of a man in Detroit. The Detroit Free Press ran a story probably over a week ago, but it, it became, it, it disseminated this past week through much of North American media at least. And this man named James Robertson, he's 57 years old. Did you hear this story? He's 57 years old, and he lives in Detroit, and Detroit kind of doesn't exist anymore, infrastructure-wise and the rest. So the transit system's broken down, like a lot of routes are canceled. So for the past 10 years, James Robertson has had to walk a total of 30 kilometers to and from work every single day. A part of the trip, he can catch a bus, so that doesn't count to the 30 kilometers, but he walks 30 kilometers total, round trip, to work. Every, he makes $10.55 an hour in a, like a factory, a machine place. I, just to give you a sense of it, I'll show you what he looks like in a little bit of the... I'm going to work. He worked at St. Timothy's. How long am I going to wait? Well, it's okay. James, James Robertson, I mean, he's he's stocky guy, big, looks weathered from the years. And the first video that they have on the Detroit Free Press website is just the the kind of compilation of him walking to and from work and him narrating over it, saying, you know, I've got a loyalty to my job. I guess that's why I keep doing it. And not a lot of complaint. He talks about praying. He talks about the Lord. There's some religious sense in there. And you know what happened to him? Some of you do. People heard about this and read it, and then we do what often we do as humans. We turn somebody in from a loser, basically, like that's the story, oh, poor guy, into a hero. We so so quickly turn, right? And also, people want to be good to him. So a young man starts a crowdfunding campaign. You can donate online. Over $300,000 is raised to give to this James Robertson. Now you don't like him so much, do you? (laughs) You felt sorry for him before. And a couple dealerships, dealerships fight it out to give him a car. A little uh, cynical there, okay. Anyway, he gets a Ford, and they get some advertising. It is Detroit, after all. And there's a scene in a second video where he's, and it's so photo-opped. There's actually raw footage online of it, which is just the best, because it's so kind of clunky. And Okay, Mr. Robinson, come and sit in your car now. And he sits down, and he's handed... He thinks it's a key. He's never seen a car without a key before. And he says, just press this. He presses this thing, and the car starts. And the Ford guy, looking nice and, you know, ready for the photo op in the passenger seat, says, "How do you, do you like it? James Robertson says, no. No, he doesn't. Do, do you like it? James Robertson says, do I like it? He's kind of a gruffer. Do I like it? 
I love it. And there's a reporter on the outside of the car, windows down, a bunch of reporters, and somebody puts a mic in his face and kind of hollers out, tell us what you feel right now. Tell, what do you have to say? Now, I'm, I'm wanting to equate this to, not equate it, give it as a small glimmer of life in Christ. This is what James Robertson says. What do you have to say? And he says this. And, and my skeptical self thinks, when he says what I'm about to tell you, my response is, well, it took a long time for that. What do you have to say? James Robinson turns to the reporter and says, just one thing. The Lord answers prayer. And then nobody knows what to ask next, so they just wait. <laughs> and he does this. You should see it. He, he closes his eyes. And he says, because he just said the Lord answers prayer. He closes his eyes and says, I knew it would be good. And then he tilts his head back. I never knew it would be this good. That's a Christian statement. I knew God had life for me, but I never knew that it would be this good. Christians will find that they are never called to anything other than hope. Hope for themselves and hope for the world. I wish I could describe this for you. There's pictures. I have one here. I'm not going to go into it. George MacDonald, who influenced um, greatly, C.S. Lewis calls him his greatest influence. Certainly J.R.R. Tolkien. George MacDonald, a Christian writer who got in trouble from churches, wasn't mainstream enough. But he tries to describe this life with pictures of uh, uh, springtime or like a, a, a river running, starts in a desert, but it, it seems as it floats to sing of life. And you're in a boat caught in this stream and it flows and it's, these, are the, these are the words, it laves its banks till I saw that the desert became a paradise At first I saw blades of grass, then I saw a bush, then trees, a huge chestnut tree towering over, reaching over this stream. And blossoms begin to drop, milk white and rosy red, all about me, all around me. It's a landscape of bewildering loveliness, wild roses everywhere, perfumed air. And the writer says, my heart fainted with longing. In the way of the world, you seek to get what you can from your life and you trouble yourself if you look at anybody else and they have more. Relationship, stuff, success. You seek to get what you can. You become more aware of self in the way of the world. In the way of God, when you see this abundant life, you can become content with the beauty that is all contained there all present, and you don't seek to consume it. You seek to, be, you seek to be consumed by it, to enter into it. And so as we turn to our time of communion, I ask directly and simply, will you turn to God? Will you accept Jesus Christ and the life that is in him? It's not simply for those who never have. 
It's a question for all of us. I'm not offering you religion, and I'll tell you personally and gratefully that God has never asked me to be religious. Hasn't happened yet. Starting to think it won't. And I'm glad. God has never asked me to be religious. But I will say this. I'd yell it out if it wouldn't upset you so much. They got mad when I'm really happy. I will say this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. No boasting, not my doing, but God's. I simply receive and invite you to do the same and to live in the light of this glorious gospel. Let's pray and pray for the communion. And we always say at our time of communion that if you know Jesus Christ or would like to, you're welcome to partake of the communion. We'll hand the bread out first, and you can simply take it as you receive, and then the cup. Let's pray together. On the night that our Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he gave thanks, and he said, this is my body given for you. Do you hear now the atonement in those words? This is my body given for you. Take and eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he spoke of the cup as, the, as his blood, the new covenant. His blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins that we would know life. And so what is left for us is to receive the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, declaring that our faith is in him, the light of the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.